Material on this program is intended for general information only and should not be taken as specific investment, tax, or legal advice. None of the information contained in this broadcast is intended by the host to be a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security. Endorsed Local Provider is an endorsement of customer service only and does not reflect quality of investment decisions and is not connected to investment returns. Further information is available by contacting Richard Young Associates, a registered investment advisor. Security sold through Independent Financial Group, LLC, member of FINRA and SIP. Welcome to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house and giving out prescriptions for better financial health and making smart decisions with your money. We give common sense solutions to your complex problems. I'm Steve Marbert, a certified financial planner and an investment advisor with over 20 years' experience in providing financial planning and investment advice. And I'm John Travis. I'm a Dave Ramsey local provider. also have an MBA in finance and have been helping corporations and individuals with planning for over 20 years. And I'm Gordon Leopard, financial advisor with Richard Young Associates. Good to be here today, guys. Yeah, a good Saturday. It is a great Saturday to but be here, isn't it? You know, better than last Saturday. Football's in the air. Oh, I was talking about just that mm. that that smell of the crisp, you know, yeah. crisp fall air, like a like a good kickoff, isn't it? And you seem like, to be in a good like, mood versus like last year at this time. It's kind of like you know, it just feels kind of like a four and and0 kind of time, you know, when you're when you're when you you've won all your games. Or, or, well, no, I take it back. Maybe it feels more like a two and four. Well, when you play in the SEC versus the ACC, it's just Ouch. that's what happens, you Ouch. know. Well, yeah, we we kind of played a couple top teams. You played not one. Top. Well, okay, one top team. We'll let you gloat a little bit, Mister Marvin. But, uh, hey, you know, Clemson I mean, great great win. I mean, that was oh, that was a huge Dame. win was, for the program. You know what I was really impressed with is the number of fans in the seats. I mean, I could not believe the, the, the attendance of that game. I mean... Terrible weather. Yeah, yeah the I weather mean, was horrible. There was flooding going on everywhere, and Clemson showed out. I was very impressed. Yeah, it is hard to believe that many people went to, you know, sit in the rain and, yep. and watch them win. And thankfully, they did win, yeah. so they didn't have to have a go-home wet in. Yeah, and, uh, right, like some sad. other teams. Exactly. Yeah, we exactly. uh, we we didn't. Georgia had it tough. Well, Carolina did as well. So yeah, anyway. both uh, local teams had they had their problems yeah. and uh, Tech I lost. The as Tech well. lost. So everybody lost except Clemson. Yeah. Wow. So wow, it's a, it's a great week for you. And it's a different day though. It is. It is. Mark a this day. one on your calendar. Carolina is playing LSU. I've got a good feeling about that. <laughs> oh come on! Don't be laughing at me, guys. Okay. Wow. Okay. Back. The to Fournette train here. is coming to town. Yes, it is. Back to money. We're not totally a football show here, but. But, uh, but, but we should be. be. You know, it'd be fun. Yeah, we are excited to have you listening to us today on our weekly radio show. I mean, we're here every Saturday like today from 9 to 10 a.m. You can also go to our website, moneymd.net. Um, we have some links out there. You can uh, stream us from your computer, uh, obviously, 1230 a.m. on the dial, or we have podcasts. So if you miss a week, you can certainly catch up with us. Go on the website, and we have a link to all the podcasts that you can then go and uh, check out. And email us if you have questions at info at moneymd.net or link to us there on the website. So uh, so no no reason to miss your appointment with the money doctors. Not at all. Not, we, not at all. We make it easy. Exactly. And we have a great show lineup for the day, too, by the way. Way. Um, you know, we're going to start off talking about the 10 retirement crisis numbers. 
Mm. There are 10 numbers you need to know about retirement. It's all about and numbers. They're a little bit scary here, yeah, so you want to stay tuned for these. Yeah, that's that's good. And then we're going to dive into um, a topic about <clears throat> excuse me, international investing, five myths about international investing that are debunked. So we're going to go through a lot of misconceptions out there. We're going to kind of set the record straight today. Money myth busters. That's right. Absolutely. That'll be a good one. That'll be nice. And then there are a couple things that you should know about Medicare before age 65 way too many people they get to age 65 and find themselves scrambling and uh, don't really know which way to turn uh so we're going to try to clear up a few things um in that last session about medicare yeah some misconceptions about what it covers right that's right all right, but we're going to start off here, though, with the financial fact of the week. Yeah, this comes from uh, the Senate legislation, and um, there was a bill that was introduced in uh, 2015 in January that would limit a college student from borrowing more than $30,000 a year, and their lifetime maximum would be 150000 and those are in federal government-backed loans to pay for the tuition and living expenses, so... They're starting to cap it. I mean, there's a crisis out there with student loans. I mean, yeah, there's over a trillion dollars. I can't, I, I don't remember exactly what the number is, but it was a huge number of outstanding student loans, and they're projected that a lot of those are, are going to be in default. A lot already are in default. And uh, so I think capping it is a smart thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, I mean, should you really be spending over $150,000 in loans on your college education? Yeah, probably not. I mean, we do see medical folks, uh, doctors, dentists that go through that. They do come out with that. Um, but we also see folks with undergrad that have, you know, degrees that are probably not going to earn more than thirty, thirty-five thousand 35000 a year. And they're going to – they can't pay it. Yeah, and if you're a doctor, you don't need a government-backed loan anyway, yeah, right? I mean, true. if you're going to be a doctor, you can get loans um, and, and be able to pay it back. So – yeah, I think it, it's just the government, there's only so far they should go, I think, in backing loans. So this is really probably a good thing um, yeah, long term. So add some sensibility to the system there with government-backed loans for education. So interesting fact of the week. Okay, and that leads up to our first topic here, and that is the 10 retirement crisis numbers. Um, this is an article that comes out of thinkadvisor.com here recently. And, you know, I mean, there are 10 stats here that should motivate just about anyone to make retirement planning a priority. Unfortunately, people haven't done that, and that's the problem here. And while few industry experts say that there there are a few that say there's little or nothing to fear really on the retirement front, deep down inside, we all know that's not true. I mean, how else would you explain how worried so many people are about retirement? You know, insecurity on the job, um, low frozen salaries, high expenses, unpredictable markets. They have all thrown people into a tizzy over how they're going to afford to retire or how they might be able to kind of cheat their retirement demons by continuing to work, Mm -hmm. you know, well into their 70s or something. Um, And, you know, I mean, it's a... It's just not enough to give a person, I mean, it is enough to give a person gray hair or to cause you to lose whatever gray hair you already do have when you start thinking about retirement and start thinking about these numbers. And now there's a new report out by the NAG DCA. I won't try to tell you what that means, (laughs) what that stands for, but it's a new report by them about retirement that provided a whole host of statistics that is just about guaranteed to strike terror into the heart of anyone who has ever contemplated retirement, even as an intellectual exercise. So here's their opening sentence, they said in this report. 
They say the unfortunate state of Americans' financial preparedness for retirement is well documented and may be summed up in two words, not ready. Yeah, that's so exclamation point. That's yeah, that's that's <clears throat> not good. You know, one thing that they're super worried about is the looming disaster of health care costs for retirees. And that's something that they say nobody is ready for. And most people don't even seem to realize that it's going to become a major problem when they retire. So here are 10 statistics from the NAGDCA's report that seem to, to us, to rank pretty high on the nightmare list. Um, hopefully, you know, these don't apply to you, but you need to take notes. I mean, you need to pay attention to these because if they do apply to you, yeah, then uh, you need to do something about it while you still have time. Yeah, make some changes. So we offer them here for you to... Uh, contemplate and uh, keep you awake at night if you're having trouble going to sleep or having trouble staying awake and uh, figure out how to get more money to pay for these senior bills. So the first one here on the list, um, yeah, 20, 22%. 22%. 22% right? That's the first number. And just 22% of workers are confident that they'll have enough re- uh, money in retirement. You know, that's a very, very low percent. Um, but we see that. We see that stat and we talk about that, that not a lot of people are comfortable primarily because they don't do retirement plans. I mean, that's, that's right. one of the exercises right. that we spend a lot of time on. It at least gives people an idea if they're marching and walking towards their goals. So only 22% of people are, are confident. Yeah, and people really, I mean, they have an idea where they stand, right? Even if they don't do a retirement plan, in their gut, they yeah. know, okay, how much they have in their 401K, whether or not they have a pension. And they're worried for a reason. I mean, that means 78% of people are not very confident. So that's a very... Very significant factor, um, very significant statistic. All right, next one here on the list is 45%. That's the number. According to a recent congressional testimony, 45% of Americans have saved exactly nothing. Mm. Zero, zip, nada for retirement. Um, That's pretty pathetic, guys. I mean, in fact, although lots of higher net worth people have, you know, saved money for retirement, those on the lower end of the spectrum are truly ill-prepared to venture forth into retirement. Um, They said in this testimony here, overall, the average working household has little to nothing saved for retirement. The median retirement uh, account balance is only $3,000 for working age households and only $12,000 for households that are approaching retirement. $12,000. That's unbelievable. Yeah, that means Social Security is going to be the main part of their retirement. I mean, it's going to have to be all of it, probably. Which is little. For a lot of these I mean, people. Yeah, right, it's right. very, very little. Yeah, two-thirds of the working age households with earners between 55 and 64 years of age have at least one earner who has saved less than one year's income for retirement. And that's just not going to get it done, folks. Yeah, that's not going to take you very far into retirement. And that's leading into this next number, 20 years beyond age 65. Now, that's that's the average lifespan of most women uh, past 65. So they're looking at living up to about 85. Uh, life expectancy for most men's around 83. And, you know, this could bring a lot of financial grief or some challenges for sure uh, for women. Several factors that, that kind of attribute to that. A, they live longer. You know, obviously, like we just discussed there, B, they make less uh, in some cases, you know, over the course of their working life. And, you know, add to that fact, according to the Department of Labor statistics, that they're more likely to have worked, you know, part time jobs and uh, haven't quite accumulated sometimes quite as much 
in their retirement plans and also you know the fact that they're going to have less social security granted they'll get the social security of their spouse yeah but still staying home with kids is what we see a lot of times that's right it's one of the contributing factors yeah 20 years is a long time to plan for so we got to get get busy on that if you're near retirement okay that leads up to our break here but if you have questions you can email us at info at moneymd.net or give us a call during regular business hours 706-739-0725 you're listening to money md we'll be right back after these messages Welcome back to Money MD. Many doctors are in the house. I'm Steve Marvin, a certified financial planner, and I'm here with John Travis, who is the Dave Ramsey local provider, and Gordon Leppard, who is a financial advisor at Richard Young Associates, along with us. And we are continuing our discussion here before the break about the 10 retirement crisis numbers. Um, You know, guys, these are... These are scary numbers, and it just kind of highlights the fact of how bad a shape we are in as a country mm-hmm. in preparing for retirement. Yeah, basically not ready. Most people are not ready for retirement. Not ready, and we see this every day. But I mean, we're 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 meeting with people, you know, in our business that tend to, to have some savings. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, they are somewhat ready for retirement. Yeah. Um, so we're not even seeing the folks that that typically are not ready because right. they don't have anything to invest and they don't need any planning because it's going to be Medicare. It's going to be, that's their plan. It's yep. Medicare. Right. That's not a good plan. Our, Social Security. Our Social Security and Medicare. <clears throat> Just not a great plan, folks. Yeah, I mean, so the first number here was 22%. You know, 22% of workers are very confident they're ready for retirement. 78% not very confident at all. And, and then we talked about 45% of Americans that have saved absolutely zero for retirement. That's unbelievable. It really is. And then they said the median retirement balance for retirement-aged workers is only $12,000 for households. Yeah, that's not approaching enough. retirement. <laughs> That's unbelievable. That just means that's nothing. That's not even an emergency fund for most people. So, you know, forget it. If you're if you're approaching retirement and you have nothing significant <clears throat> saved. And then, you know, the next one was 20 years beyond age 65. That's the average lifespan that a woman approaching retirement age 65 has to plan for statistically. Um, so, you know, men are two years shorter. But still, that's a long time to plan for. You've got to have some savings. Social Security is not going to get it done. Medicare is going to be cut down. We're going to talk about that here in a little bit. But, you know, it's just these numbers are not very good. And But the list keeps going on here. You know, one out of six is the next statistic here. One out of six. Just one out of six employers offers health insurance that covers retirees these days. Um, and that's a very big deal since the cost of health care retirement makes up the bulk of the expenses that that's on our list here to talk about. Um, that's a real big deal. And, you know, in days gone by, employers provided pension plans. Remember those? Yeah. 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 Kind of like dinosaurs. They're yeah. Kinda, they're gone. Have a couple of people coming in with those, but not many. Yeah. I mean, if you're if you're under 50, you can probably forget a pension plan, yeah. you know. Um, and so, you know, that, that paid a steady fixed income every month. And they also frequently offered health care coverage employers did to their employees um, who spent a good chunk of their lives at the firm helping to grow the business, but no more. I mean, now health 
insurance coverage during retirement can be summed up in one word for most people. It's Medicare, mm-hmm. right? And, and, you know, some lucky ones might have six words. That would be Medicare and long-term care insurance. But, you know, if not, I mean, then you're on your own when disaster strikes, and it's a big number, right? Yeah, and that's the next number on the list is 220000 That's the average um, amount of out-of-pocket medical cost, health care cost, that a 65-year-old couple can expect to, to pay. I mean, that is staggering. Wow. I mean, that's a huge number. That's a lot of your, I mean, if you, so if you do have 300,000 saved up, a lot of it's going to go towards medical of your lifetime. So, I mean, that's a big number. So you have to plan on those type of costs. Maybe long-term care insurance is an option. Um, and we're going to talk about that a little bit later, but you know, that's, that's a big deal. That's a lot of money. It's a real big deal. And I know people are counting on Medicare covering that for them, but you know, truth is, I mean, Medicare is just can't keep up with the growth of, of uh, of health related expenses, and that's the next number here on the list. The next number is five point eight percent. That's the projected annual growth rate for health care spending through twenty twenty two. So, if you assume a retirement projection based on a four percent withdrawal rate per year to live off of during retirement, off out of your four hundred one k or your retirement savings. You know, where does that leave you? If your health care is going up 5.8% and you're taking out 4%, there's no way your account can keep up with that kind of inflation rate. Right. And so what that leaves you with is not enough. That's where it leaves you. I mean, eventually, everyone is going to end up on Medicare, you know, and and I think the bottom line is it's going to be a lot lower quality care with Medicare because they're not going to be able to keep up. The government's not going to be able to keep up covering all the expenses, you know, the CBO estimate puts it at over a trillion dollars deficit per year, probably just five or six years from now. Wow, that's huge. And that's just one element, you know, the health care that you're talking about there. Um, the next number is 62%. That's all the average retiree can expect from Medicare to pay of his medical care expenses once it finally kicks in. Now, back in 2010, uh, Congress, they they decided to pass what's called the Patent Protection and Affordable Act. And um, that's supposed to beat back whatever uh, it could of the program's budget deficit projections by mandating that, you know, various cost contaminant measures. And, you know, what... Uh, along with that, for the most part, the savings accrued would go to the federal government. Oh, so, you right. know, that's not actually money going back in your pocket. Yeah, that's, They're trying to save the system there. <clears throat> exactly. That's right. Yeah. And, I mean, the government has the freedom to bring in more money, of course, through higher taxes and other means. But not to you. I mean, you can't raise your retirement income short of going back to work. So <clears throat> you're going to have to spend less on other things like food and, you know, vacations and the roof over your head. So that leads up to the next number. The next number is 38%, and that's how much they're projecting that your medical expenses will have to be whenever you file a Medicare claim. You're going to have to cover 38% of the cost. Um, In case you're wondering how your medical expenses shake out, you know, the report very kindly broke that down for us as follows. 23% came out of your pocket for prescription drug expenses. 32% 32% for Medicare premiums for Part B and D. And then the Whopper is 45% for Medicare copays, cost sharing, and deductibles. I mean, that's really a lot. You know, and I, I disagree with this report a little bit in the sense that I think 
I think people aren't going to pay 60, uh, 38% of their medical costs because they can't afford it. Mm-hmm. So what's going to happen is Medicare will probably still cover the majority of it, but it's going to be a lot lower quality care because they're going to start capping the expenses just like they already do. They're just going to keep it capped, and you know, you're going to have to go to the doctor that you know sees 150 patients or, a day. Or maybe a PA. I mean, it may not a be PA, a doctor. A PA, a nurse, somebody like that. Exactly. I mean, you're just not going to get the quality care that you're getting now on Medicare. It's going to be like all the government programs over in Europe where you, there's long waits, and when you do go in, you're getting seen by somebody that has really substandard training for a doctor. Um, I think that's where it's going here. So that was number eight. Next one on the list here is 200000 plus. Remember we mentioned long-term care insurance? Well, if you don't have it and it turns out that you need it, that's the figure is what you could end up paying in a single year in a skilled nursing facility or some kind of high-end assisted living facility. $200,000 a year. That's a lot of money. And that co- that cost continues to escalate. I mean, but that's what they're projecting it'll be at, you know, down the road here in the not-too-distant future, you know, when it doubles. So, you know, how does that fit into your retirement budget? The bottom line is it doesn't. You know, you there's no way you're going to be able to fork out $200,000 for the average person in retirement for long-term care expenses per year. So, ouch. Last one on the list here is not seen since the Great Depression. That's why they describe this crisis. They say it's a crisis not seen since the Great Depression, according to the report. That's the magnitude of the financial challenges that will be faced by the upcoming retirees. And that's the first generation that's seen this kind of crisis since the Great Depression, so glad you could be so positive today. Ouch! Yeah, Dr. well, Marbert. you know, we talked about football. Yeah, we can go hey, back that's to that. Not positive either. Well, yeah, it is. I mean, you know, four and zero. Just wait for me. I'll, I'll, I'll bring some positive. It's according to which side of the ball you're on. There. That's right. Ouch. Okay. Well, that's uh, that's the retirement crisis numbers, but there is something you can do about it. So start planning now if yeah, you're not in right. retirement. Um, so. And that leads us up here, though, to our question of the week. Yeah, this question has to do with long-term care insurance, actually. And, um, you know, we see folks that come in, and sometimes they have pensions and Social Security, and um, they've done a good job saving. So maybe long-term care insurance is not a good fit. Um, So the question is, is my wife and I have $50,000 a year in Social Security. They have $40,000 a year coming in in pensions. So that's about 90000 and they that's have good. about a million dollars saved in retirement. <clears throat> so the question is, is do we need long-term care insurance? And, you know, the answer is always, would you have any debt? Um, do you have some cash built up? Depends, yeah. Yeah, it really does depend. I mean, you could maybe make a case that they don't need it, but if they got a small policy for $100,000 roughly, you know, when they if they did need long term care insurance, they would basically use the policy before they had to go into their retirement right. assets. So almost like a supplement. <clears throat> yeah, it I is. would I would say that's the type of person that probably does need it because they're you know or should consider it because they're in that zone where they have enough assets to protect a mm-hmm. million dollars and they have enough income that they probably could afford a small policy. You know, so so they're in that zone where they probably should consider it, but people that have a lot less may not should be able to consider yeah. it because they couldn't afford it. Part of it comes that, down to the budget. <clears throat> right. A lot of people, it's it's two to $3,000 right. a year, and some people just can't afford that. So That's right. It, uh, it really depends on the situation. Sometimes it comes down to personal 
values and beliefs as well that you have to factor in as well. So there's not a pat answer on this. You have to sit down and go through some some numbers. Everybody's different. That's yep. right. Okay, that leads up to our break here. But if you have questions, you can email us at info at moneymd.net or give us a call, 706-739-0725. You're listening to Money MD. We'll be right back after these messages and GNN News. Stay with us. Welcome back to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. I'm Steve Barber, the certified financial planner, and I'm here with John Travis, who is a Dave Ramsey local provider, and Gordon Leppard, who is a financial advisor at Richard Young Associates, along with us. And we are continuing our show here with the next segment, and we are going to uh, start off with... uh, the five well, myths. The five myths. There you go. Uh, the five in, myths. International investing. Oh, yes, yes. I <coughs> We're going to debunk that. them, though. That's good. We're going to debunk them. Good. We are. There, yeah. We're going to set everybody myths straight. Are, myths are things that people don't shouldn't believe. Yeah, this is a great article. It's out of Financial Planning Magazine by a gentleman named Brian Jacobson, who's the uh, chief portfolio strategist for Wells Fargo funds. Um, and it's really interesting, guys. Um, International has really gotten a bad rap over the last couple of years, but you dive into the, the details and the data a little bit, um, it kind of paints a different picture, and that's what he does. I think he does a pretty good job of it. And for today's equity investors, there's literally a, a world of opportunity that people are missing. I mean, many Americans are underinvested uh, internationally. And I, I'll also say, you know, just a standard disclaimer, the international investing can certainly be volatile. There's some currency risk, so you got to make sure that it's right for your portfolio. Um, we certainly believe in it, um, the way we manage money, um, but you got to make sure that it, it fits into to your uh, your future and kind of your retirement plan. Absolutely. And it doesn't guarantee returns. That's right. That past performance, exactly. Thank you, guys. So um, so how do uh, you know, advisors inspire clients to move money outside the domestic comfort zone? Well, you know, it's having discussions like this. And so myth number one, we'll jump right into it, is um, a lot of people think they have enough exposure to the international markets. And uh, investors may not have as much exposure as they think. I mean, portfolios allocated according to global market capitalization would have almost half of their equity portion invested internationally. And I guarantee most people don't no, even come. People don't come anywhere close. They don't we come run, close to that. We run houses all the time, and folks are usually like 10% or less. That's right. That's right. And he actually recommends, this is interesting, he recommends 66% of the equity allocation to international. That's a little bit on the That's a little high. On the high side. Um, you know, but he's looking at it from, a, from a, an opportunity standpoint as well. He thinks there's great opportunity out there. So clients should think about their portfolios um, um, holistically, adding in you know expected work income and home value, and both of those are driven by the U.S. economy and really not the international forces. So why not diversify and add some international in there? Um, you know, the Federal Reserve and the IMF suggest uh, international allocation to average between 16 and 30 percent. We go a little bit higher than that um, based on our historical knowledge and some of the diversification it adds. But, you know, certainly, like you said, most people coming in to the to, to our office, they have very little in international. Exactly. Yeah, that's not a bad target, though. You know, <clears throat> it's 16 not. up it's to reasonable. 30. But 
Still, I mean, yeah, the problem is clients think they have enough international exposure already because they say they're in U.S. companies with global interests. We hear that all the time, right? Mm-hmm. I'm in a, and these yeah. are global companies, right. so they have overseas operations, and there's my international exposure. Well, you know, the fact is most globally diversified U.S. companies are very large. So that creates an all-large-cap bias to your international allocation for what you do have. Um, You know, then there's the diversity of sectors and countries to consider. I mean, many global U.S. companies are concentrated in the information and technology and, and material sectors. So if clients are seeking international exposure in that way... You know, then they're missing out on exposure to global banks, retail, um, healthcare, utilities, and a lot of others. So, I mean, plus, you know, there is very little emerging market exposure to large U.S. companies. So, I mean, any global exposure through U.S. companies, through U.S. stocks, Holdings is they're not going to have the sectors of the countries that will really you know give you the the mm-hmm. global uh, the international exposure that you need and it's going to follow the U.S. market. That's another big misconception people have. They think U.S. companies that have international exposure will give you that diversification. It won't because they're going to follow U.S. stocks. Right. They're going to follow the U.S. market. They're not going to follow international markets which you know do not follow U.S. in lockstep. Right. So that's what you need to have. So if you have questions on your international portfolio, we can certainly look inside of that and kind of give you an idea of where you stand. So that's number one. You know, most people think they have enough exposure and they don't. Number two, myth number two here is the best equity opportunities are in the U.S. I mean, guys, over the past 10 years, 79 of the top 100 best performing stocks were outside the United States. Okay, so that's a lot. It is a lot. And in fairness, over shorter periods or or different periods, this number can change. But the bigger point here is that is that where a company is domiciled is becoming increasingly less relevant. You're likely to read news of tax inversions, companies merging with foreign corporations to save on the tax bill back home. So you don't always know kind of the situation um, of where where that company is domiciled. Well, and 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 that's partly because of the speed and way business is done and new technology that that supports that. So, you know, even if you think the U.S. economy represents the best opportunity on the planet, that doesn't mean the U.S. stocks are the best investment opportunities necessarily, you know. So just an example, the biggest, um, one of the biggest beverage makers uh, that it's consumed here in America is no longer an American company uh, looking at where a company derives its revenue rather than where it calls home actually makes more sense Mm -hmm. Uh, so but but what about currency hedging how how do you incorporate that layer of cost and the complexities associated with that into your international allocation well easy let's sit down and let's talk with a professional (laughs) again you know sometimes currency moves enhance returns and sometimes they actually hurt you know, so be very, very careful to try to not do that on your own. You know, to always and everywhere hedge currency risks, that's a mistake. Again, let a professional, you know, money manager that, that knows what they're doing and the costs that are associated with that really diversify that and incorporate that into your overall portfolio. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, doing hedging is very expensive, and it's That's a right. zero-sum game. And it's very risky there. In the yeah. end, it's, it's usually, you know, a zero-sum game. Yeah, so no, that's that's the uh, second myth. The third myth here is U.S.-based companies are expected to out-earn 
those outside the U.S. And forward-looking estimates point to better earnings in non-U.S. companies, international, according to data compiled from factset.com and uh, Wells Fargo Asset Management. That was as of June the 30th. So, you know, the first question to ask <clears throat> if those expectations are already baked into the price of stocks. That's a great question. Uh, when making investment decisions, it's not just about where earnings will grow, but whether or not they will grow faster or slower than expected. And it's almost like the, the bar has been set, you know, much lower for international companies than it is U.S. I mean, a lot of people are down on international Sure. Um, you know, they, they've had a tough four or five years. So investors and analysts have likely anchored their growth projections in the next five years on what's happened over the past five. And, you know, that's probably, you know, it's undervaluing a little bit the international. That's what we see in the market. So the recent downdraft in emerging market stocks has um, pretty much pushed stocks lower um, indiscriminately over in that sector. And that's a problem with index-based investing is that there's some good stocks and some bad stocks. So, you know, you got to look at your situation and see if this is right for you. But there are opportunities outside the United States that you may want to consider. Yeah, that's exactly right. And the fourth myth here, though, is slow growth in the U.S. is still faster than growth outside the U.S., that is completely false. I mean, in fact, the reality is this. I mean, global economic growth has risen to the mid-threes, 3% range, according to the IMF, as of June 30th. Um, U.S. growth for 2016 is forecast to be right at 3%, but global growth is forecast to be a bit stronger at 3.8%. So it's not just the growth rate, though, um, that's important, but it's the change in the growth rate that really matters in terms of what the stocks do and what the market does. Europe's moving from a contraction to an expansion, and that's more meaningful to investors than the U.S. just kind of chugging along at 3% growth rate or 2.5% growth rate. And then there's China. I mean, people wonder whether there's still going to be a soft landing or hard landing for China. That's completely overblown, according to this article, um, to talk about a landing in China when China's still growing at 7%. I mean, even if it's really only 5%, China is still taking off. They're not landing. I mean, besides, in a, in a well-diversified portfolio, China makes up about 20% of emerging market exposure, and emerging market exposure um, is just 15% of an investor's portfolio, which would be high. But mm, if it was 15%, yeah. then China only accounts for 3% of your portfolio. A total of 3%. Yeah. Wow. So it's still a very small part of, of your overall portfolio and a small part of international. So, yeah, I mean, I think that that whole thing about, you know, thinking about growth rates and growth rates being higher here than they are overseas, it's really about the expectations and with the internationals being priced so low and having done um, lower, worse than the U.S. Yep. for so long, I think there really is opportunity for internationals to exceed their expectations mm-hmm. more so than in the U.S. So yep. this article makes some really good points. That leads up to our break here. So if you have questions, you can email us at info at moneymd.net. Or you can give us a call, 706-739-0725. You're listening to Money MD. We'll be right back after these messages. Stay with us. 
Welcome back to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. I'm Steve Marbert, a certified financial planner. And I'm here with John Travis, who is a Dave Ramsey local provider, and Gordon Leopard, who is an advisor at Richie Young Associates, along with us. And we are continuing our discussion here before the break about the five myths of international investing. You know, I mean, there are just a lot of myths out there about why you shouldn't invest in international stocks or mm-hmm. why, why people don't want to invest in international stocks. And I think this article does a great job of debunking those. Yeah, this is a, a great article out of financial planning. And, uh, you know, we talked about it when we started this. You know, you got to make sure international is right for your portfolio and fit. We're big believers in it. We see it as a great diversifier in what we do. And um, some of the things we hear people say is, you know, I have enough exposure to international markets, and we lift underneath the hood, and, you know, maybe they have 5% or 7%. You know, that's that's kind of low, in our opinion. 16 to 30 to 35% may be a better, you know, target. Yeah, and, you know, and I know a lot of people are disenchanted with internationals here recently because internationals, sure enough, have not done very well for a long time now. I mean, compared to the U.S., mm-hmm. they've underperformed for, for two or three years now. But, you know, this goes in cycles, and that can change very, very quickly, and it's likely to change very, very quickly, and then it'll run for another whole cycle. Mm-hmm. So you don't want to be trying to guess that cycle, and now may be a great time to buy them. Yeah, if you think back in the late 90s, the U.S. outperformed significantly. <clears throat> a lot of people piled into the U.S., and then in the U.S. markets went through 10 years making virtually zero. That's right. So it can be very, very dangerous. So that's one myth. The second myth was is the best equity opportunities are in the U.S. Well, you know, that's not necessarily true. There are some great companies here, but there are also great companies outside the U.S. as well. Um, a lot of people think U.S.-based companies are expected to out-earn those in the U.S. We talked about that a little bit. Not necessarily the case. Again, we're not trying to predict the future here. But, you know, you look at the, uh, the earnings and the valuations associated with stocks and you know, international can be attractive in certain segments. Um, another one is slow growth in the U.S. is still faster than growth outside. I mean, that's false. You know, we see a, a larger growth rate outside of the U.S. Um, as well. So if you want to participate in that, owning some of the international stocks is important. And the fifth one here is that equity markets outside the U.S. have, have underperformed. And, <clears throat> Steve, we, we talked about it. It's based on time frame that you're looking at here. Um, and certainly the last couple of years they have. And so that's you know, more recent data. But when you look back into 2000, and quite frankly, you go back into history a little bit, and that's not the case. Since 2000, a global portfolio would have outperformed a U.S. Um, portfolio over a rolling 10-year period 80% of the time. And so we feel like it's dangerous not to have international in there because of these these uh, cycles that they go through. Exactly. So Yeah, yeah and you know, different markets, they'll have different leadership at different times. You know, there's there's a lot of differs there, mm-hmm. uh, but are are you going to try to time the market and, and and be right? You know, be with the right country at a given time or given quarter. Uh, but no, no, it's better to have a global diversified portfolio to take advantage of the opportunities that are, that are out there available, you know, no matter where they might be. Um, and by adding international exposure, you actually lower your volatility. You know, and that's something that we've talked about on a number of different mm-hmm. occasions on the show here, you know, because of the power of diversification. Almost by mathematical necessity, I guess you could say, you know, you'll have a broader opportunity uh, to spread your risk. Right. 
you know, and participate in, you know, some of those those gains that right. they're experiencing. I mean, bottom line, in the U.S., there's about 3,000 publicly traded companies, and uh, globally there's about 18,000. So why would you limit yourself to only a very, you know, not a small portion, but a portion of the market? So, you know, again, international investing, um, great diversifier, and, you know, you make sure it's right for your situation, but it's something you ought to certainly consider. Yeah, good topic. Okay, and that leads us up here to our uh, prescription of the week. Yeah, this prescription has to do with the flood. We've talked about that a little bit. Um, You know, really tough time for the state of South Carolina, Columbia, Charleston, and so forth. And so if you're impacted by the flooding in South Carolina, um, check out disasterassistance.gov or call 800-621-3362. We'll have this on our website, moneymd.net, as well. But there are some some assistance out there potentially for you. Got to check yeah, into there's, it. Yeah, there's ways to get help. And so. and right now, one of their biggest needs, like you mentioned to us earlier, John, just talking, you know, off the air, was the, their need for water, bottled water. Yeah, you know, especially in Columbia and some of the different areas. So yeah, maybe Rubio can forward that water that uh, Donald Trump sent him down to. Yeah, heard, heard that about that. Boy. Yeah, <laughs> that'd be good. All right, that leads up to our last topic here, and that is the things you need to know about Medicare before age sixty-five. You know, there are some myths out there about Medicare, about what it covers and what it doesn't cover. And so, uh, yeah, this is a really important topic, Gordon. Yeah, there, there's quite a few misconceptions. And uh, Carol Marak, uh, she's an aging advocate and a senior care contributor. Uh, she wrote a, a, a nice little article here and interviewed several um, senior experts just to kind of get their, their view and, and hear back from them on some of the different misconceptions like you were talking about there, Steve. And this is uh, this is her article. It said, you know, it's hard to believe that Medicare is the largest insurance program for Americans 65 and older, yet very few feel that they have a, you know, a really good understanding of it. Uh, research conducted by the California Healthcare Foundation showed that uh, consumers making decisions at enrollment without actually knowing how it works or how to get the most uh, from the benefits, they found they found themselves really confused a lot of times and, and not always making the best decision for their for their case. Yeah, that's right. I mean, consumers, unfortunately, they receive their information about health care, usually through their employers. And that's what researchers have found out. And so what they've discovered is that older Americans coming into Medicare are very not not very well informed. I mean, they assume that the government is going to contact them and going to guide them through Social Security um, or and they are they just simply wait until Social Security approaches before they start looking at Medicare. And that's a mistake, you know. I mean, even the ones who research the program remain confused. And so you need to do your homework. You need to find out exactly what Medicare does cover. It definitely presents some challenges. And, you know, how many 64-year-olds, you know, these are the people right before entering into Medicare, how many of them actually know how it works? Well, according to this study, only 11% know all or most of the information they need. 60% know nothing or little at all. 30% uh, of those who are less than three months away from the enrollment time have not researched Medicare at all. You know, nearly 43% don't know where to find information. Half will rely on someone else to give them that Medicare uh, um, information. So, you know, there's there's just a lot of numbers here that represent uh, being ill-prepared, you know, and, and not really knowing 
uh, about Medicare going into it. Yeah, so one of uh, great resources, uh, SeniorCare.com. I mean, they serve the older adults, right. um, you know, and so they have topics every month. And so this month, you know, they're, they've spotlighted um, Medicare, and they had uh, they asked questions to 11 ex- experts. Yeah, and, and here's the the one question that they shared, John, you know, with all, all of these different experts. What one thing is it that most people would be most shocked to know about Medicare? And they they got a number of different answers, obviously, but here are some of the highlights uh, that, that they touched on. First of all, Medicare does not cover most chronic care needs. You know, the services people so often need as they get older, like nursing home care and in-home care, are generally not covered, except for, you know, a few very specific acute care needs. Uh, this is also a point of confusion between Medicare and Medicaid. You know, the names are very similar, and a lot of people, they, they get those mixed up. So there, there's some confusion there. Yeah, and I mean, this is one of the really important facts here, that most people don't know that to be covered for skilled nursing care, a person has to be admitted to a hospital stay for three days um, in order for Medicare to pick up that cost. And many hospitals, they'll classify seniors as observation, and that will exclude them from Medicare reimbursement for skilled care that might follow. So that's really important. Yep. Another one here on the list is many families are shocked to find out that Medicare will not pay for home care, help for their aging parents with uh, the day-to-day activities of living, and they're also shocked that it does not cover the expenses of assisted living or a nursing home. So, you know, a lot of details here. The next one here is Medicare does not cover any assisted living care uh, or services. So, um, you know, the list continues to go. There's a lot of things that confuse people. Hospital is... Uh, inpatient stays are often coded, like you said there, uh, Steve, as observation days. And, you know, in order for uh, benefits to really be applied the way that they need to be, uh, they've got to make sure that, uh, you know, this practice, it can be prevented uh, from from them qualifying for, you know, even post-hospital care. So they've got to be careful the way that they're they're covered. Yeah, and the majority of U.S. public thinks that I've paid thousands in the Medicare system during my lifetime, so I'll be provided care by it. That's not true. The federal government itself says Medicare is not intended to be the long-term care provider coverage, and it suggests getting additional insurance from a private carrier. Yeah, and, you know, some people, they're shocked to find out that they can they can have Medicare and Medicaid at the same time. There is a lot of confusion, you know, surrounding these two health care programs, and, you know, we always encourage those questions uh, and people with questions about the plans to seek, you know, competent advice on someone that's knowledgeable uh, and that can clearly explain this to them, you know, to help navigate through the technical language. Yeah, uh, it's a lot of information. It 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 is. Sure is. So really important. Go to Medicare.gov and, you know, find out all the details that you need to know about Medicare. Okay, well, this has been this week's edition of Money MD. Tune in next Saturday from 9 to 10 a.m. to hear more prescriptions for your financial health. And do check us on our website, moneymd.net. Email us your questions. We'd love to hear from you at info at moneymd.net or give us a call, 706-739-0725. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend. Have a good one. Ladies and gentlemen, children.
Material on this program is intended for general information only and should not be taken as specific investment, tax, or legal advice. None of the information contained in this broadcast is intended by the host to be a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security. Endorsed Local Provider is an endorsement of customer service only and does not reflect quality of investment decisions and is not connected to investment returns. Further information is available by contacting Richard Young Associates, a registered investment advisor, securities sold through Independent Financial Group, LLC, member of FINRA and SIPC. 